The future of hepatitis C treatment looks bright, most likely with the new oral protease and polymerase inhibitors currently in development. Although these agents represent an exciting phase in the development of effective hepatitis C therapy, they are still a few years away from being recommended for routine clinical use. What can we look forward to? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I am Dr. Leslie Lunt, author of You Can Think Like a Psychiatrist, your host, and with me today is Dr. Jorge Herrera. Dr. Herrera is Professor of Medicine and Assistant Director of the Division of Gastroenterology at the University of South Alabama College of Medicine in Mobile. He has published numerous articles and journals, including the American Journal of Gastroenterology and Digestive Diseases. He has also contributed chapters to books such as Secrets in Gastroenterology and recently served as guest editor for Practical Gastroenterology on its Viral Hepatitis series. His current research focuses on high-dose antiviral therapy as well as the use of interferon in the treatment of chronic hepatitis C infection. Welcome to ReachMD. Thank you, Leslie. It's a pleasure to be here today. Dr. Herrera, uh, considering the new oral compounds currently in development, what does the future of hepatitis C treatment look like? Well, Leslie, it looks very confusing, if I may say so. We have had treatment for hepatitis C since about 1989. Granted, it was not very effective, but we've had some treatment. And the reason that it's taken so long to come up with new and exciting therapies is because for many, many years, we didn't have any way of using cell culture or small animal models to develop new treatments for hepatitis C, and that was a big stumbling block. Recently, over the last eight or nine years, they've developed what is called the replicon system, which allows to test a lot of medicines in an in vitro setting and at least find some candidates that may be exciting. So as a result, we are seeing a plethora of new potential treatments that may be effective in hepatitis C. As you mentioned just a minute ago, at this time, the ones that appear to be most promising are the polymerase and protease inhibitors, of which there are several of them that are being developed. And what's the difference between the protease and the polymerase inhibitors? Well, they both target part of the virus that allows it to replicate. So, for example, the protease is, a, is an important non-structural enzyme of the virus that allows it to replicate, and by inhibiting that, you are basically inhibiting viral replication. This is a big change. Up until now, the treatment of hepatitis C has been interferon and ribavirin. Those are um, medications that basically what they do is they affect the immune response to the virus. So it was similar to using a nuclear bomb just to get rid of 100 people. You, you messed up with his entire immune system just to attack this virus. Now we're using what is called STAT-C or S-T-A-T-C therapy, which means specifically targeted antiviral therapy for hepatitis C. These are new small molecule compounds that specifically bind to parts of the hepatitis C virus. And one of those is a protease, the other one is a polymerase. In general, polymerase inhibitors tend to be a little bit weaker because the virus produces much more polymerase and protease. But now we're finding some new polymerase inhibitors that appear to be pretty um, uh, aggressive and almost as potent as the proteases. But they both work in areas where the virus needs to replicate. Now, with the advent of these newer treatment options, will they replace ribavirin? That is a very good question. Our hope was that we were going to come out with this magic pill that the patient will take with no side effects and cure them. That is not going to happen in the near future, unfortunately. One of the things that we have found with this protease and polymerase inhibitors is that, they, uh, is that the virus very quickly can mutate and become resistant. 
The hepatitis C virus replicates at an incredibly fast pace, and by doing so, it makes mistakes, and sometimes its mistakes is to its advantage. So we have seen, for example, looking at some of the new compounds that within two weeks of therapy, even though you get a fast drop in the number of viruses, you can have mutants developing. So that's the bad news, is that, is that these new compounds are very potent, but, but resistance appears very quickly. The good news is that by combining these new compounds with interferon, and in many cases with ribavirin, we can prevent the production of the mutants. So it looks like the way things are shaping is that without question, these new products, the ones that are now in phase two development, will need to be used with interferon. And in many cases, also with ribavirin. The two products that are most advanced in the phase two development, both of them have shown that the best efficacy is when you use triple therapy. That is interferon, ribavirin, and the new product. So I think that in the near future, when these products come out, that's how we're going to be using them. Many people are going to say, so what is the big deal? Well, the big deal is that they're so potent that we're hoping that we may be able to shorten the duration of treatment. Right now, for example, genotype 1 patients have to be treated for 48 weeks. We're hoping to be able to treat them for either 12 or 24 weeks and be able to put into sustained remission more people with a shorter duration of time than we can at the present. So that is a big deal. It is a big deal. But I think the message we need to give patients, there are many patients out there who say, I don't want to be treated now because I'm waiting for this new treatment that's going to be easier to take and more effective. Yes, it's going to be more effective, but no, it's not going to be easier to take. We're learning that these new drugs add to the toxicity of the, of the program. Uh, not a great deal, not to the point where it's going to be a major toxicity, but you're still going to have the toxicity of the interferon and the ribavirin, and then you're adding a third drug to it. Yes, you're going to be treated for a shorter time, and you're going to have a better chance of clearing the virus, both of which are excellent news. But you're not going to have this you know, side-effect-free treatment that many people think is coming down the line in the near future. If you've just joined us, you're listening to ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is Dr. Jorge Herrera. We are discussing the future of hepatitis C treatment. So how do these newer therapies affect the, the treatment response rate? Uh, so far, what we have seen, and, and if I may add, one of the frustrating things about hepatitis C is that it takes so long to get trials done. You know, when you're studying, let's say, an antibiotic for ear infection, you can do it for two weeks and then get an answer. In hepatitis C, most treatments need to go for a year. So you treat patients for a year compared to control, and then you have to collect the data, and then you have to wait six months to see if there's a relapse. So it takes forever to get results, and that, that's uh, kind of uh, frustrating. Nevertheless, the information that we have now on this new product is the early response rate, which means how many people clear the virus early on at week four and at week 12. And we know that clearing the virus early means that the patient is more likely to have a sustained response. Sustained response, meaning that the virus doesn't come back after you stop the treatment. So let me give you an example. If you treat patients with the standard of, thera- standard of care today, which is PEG interferon and ribavirin, and they are genotype 1, which is the most common but, but the most difficult to treat genotype, if you treat them with a therapy and you check their virus at four weeks of treatment, only about 30 to 35% will be negative. But if you add to the interferon and ribavirin one of the new drugs, let's say telaprevir, or the other one, which is posaprevir, either one, the number of patients that are negative for week four goes up to about 70 to 79%. 
So you're going from 35% at week four negativity to almost 80%. That's a big... Uh, and then a lot of that, most of those people do remain negative at week 12. The number that we really want to know is how many of them remain negative after we stop the treatment. We still don't have those numbers. We have some very preliminary information on a very small group of patients, maybe 20, 25, that it, it looks extremely exciting. Uh, but the large studies are, are currently in progress. Now, you mentioned the possibility of viral mutations. Is there any other concern about resistance to the newer compounds? Uh, I think the main one is, is the mutation. The other concern is what happens to those mutants afterwards. In other words, are we going to create a super hepatitis C virus that we can treat with anything? Those are all uh, concerns that are being explored. Almost every study that is being done has, if you want to call it an extended monitoring phase where patients get monitored so that if there is a relapse, we can analyze the virus and see whether they're relapsing with the mutated virus or not. I, I really think what's going to happen in the future, there's so many different companies working in so many different compounds that I think maybe 15 years down the line, what we're going to have is a mixture of these small molecules that we can use together and maybe even get rid of the interferon where these molecules can kill the virus within a week or so. We've learned from the HIV literature that if you can come up with a cocktail that really kills the virus rapidly, the chances for mutations diminish exponentially. So if we can come up with this cocktail that we can really decrease the viral load within the first week to almost zero, then this may lead to a sustained remission. We're not there yet. As long as we need to depend on interferon and ribavirin to suppress the virus, we're talking about a several months duration of therapy. And right now, the interference seems to be doing its job in keeping those mutants from coming up. But of course, that's not going to be 100% of the time. So there is some concern about creating, you know, super mutant hepatitis C viruses. But so far, nothing has shown that that's happening. Now, is there a vaccine for hepatitis C anywhere in the horizon? Uh, I wish, but the answer <laughs> is not, not at this mm. time. The hepatitis C virus is similar to the flu virus in that it changes a lot. That's one problem. The second problem is that for reasons that we don't understand, humans don't seem to create a good immune response against the virus. So, for example, even when we successfully treat a person with hepatitis C and they uh, go into remission and the virus goes away, if they get re-exposed to it, they can catch it again. So humans don't develop elastic immunity. So because of that, it's kind of hard to come up with a vaccine that would protect them. There is a lot of work being done on it. Uh, there is, you know, most of these studies have to be done in chimpanzees. And, uh, and there is some encouraging data, but I don't think we're close yet, unfortunately. So I think the most important thing here is prevention, is teaching, teaching the public what the risk factors are and trying to prevent getting that infection. Because once you get infected, the infection is usually silent. They don't get acute hepatitis, and 80% of them will go on to chronicity. So let's talk about prevention. How can we do that? It's education. I mean, hepatitis C virus, fortunately, is hard to pass from person to person. The most common way is exposure to, to blood and needles. In other words, you have to get somebody's blood and get it inside your blood. You know, you don't get hepatitis C from kissing someone or hugging someone. Even sexually, normal sexual relations without any exposure to blood and without any breaks in the skin or the mucosa is not really associated with a significant risk of hepatitis C. The risk comes when you have a needle with blood that you put inside your tissues, inside your vein, inside your skin, and so forth, like when you do tattoos with contaminated needles or you use IV drug use. I mean, those are things that are fairly easy to prevent if the person knows to avoid them. 
And I think if we can get that message out, now that we have been able to clean the blood supply, there's just almost no way that you can get hepatitis C from the blood supply. About the only real risk that stays out there is that of percutaneous exposure with dirty needles. And that's something you can avoid if you know that that's at risk. So what do you think about the needle exchange programs for addicts? I personally think the best thing is not to use drugs, but I realize that doesn't happen. If you choose to use uh, intravenous drugs, then by all means, do whatever you can to use clean needles and not share them. If you do that strictly and the drugs that you're injecting are not contaminated, then the chances of getting hepatitis C are very low. Well, thank you for being on our show today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. We've been discussing the future of hepatitis C treatment and prevention with Dr. Jorge Herrera from the University of South Alabama Medical School. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. We welcome your questions and comments. Please visit us at ReachMD.com. Our new on-demand and podcast features will allow you to access our entire program library. Thank you for listening. 